Most people are aware of their own financial balance sheet. As soon as we buy our first car or house, we become aware of it. If you're of a certain personality type, you may track it quite a bit. But I'd submit to you that we're also unconsciously aware of another balance sheet. And this one is sometimes tricky to measure and even harder to manage. Sometimes we often find it hard to put into words, but it's real nonetheless. I call this our intangible balance sheet. What I mean by this are those life principles, experiences, memories, and stories that given any amount of money, we wouldn't trade. They're the memories that bring tears of joy to our faces because we simply can't imagine life without them. We feel fortunate to have had them. It could be our first jobs, proposals, wedding days, births, struggles, anxieties or fears, and maybe even some hindsight. It's all those things that melt into a memory, that bring a distant stare to our face and maybe even a smile. We feel lucky to have had them because they're what has made us, us. So that's what I'm talking about when I talk about the intangible balance sheet. It's those moments in life that may be financially irrational, but which are indispensable parts of who we are. So these episodes are focused on the stories that bring us joy, happiness, fulfillment, and ultimately may hold necessary keys that will direct the future for our family, friends, and maybe even neighbors. So listen in with us as we discover some of those stories that are meaningful to our guests, and maybe you'll even uncover hidden value on your own intangible balance sheet. Welcome to another episode of Wisdom and Wealth. I'm Josh Clues, the senior planner for Carson Wealth here in the Woodlands, Texas. Uh, Today is another of our intangible balance sheet episodes um, where we dive into those concepts and and life principles that uh, mean more to us uh, than money. And today I'm joined by David Granato. David, welcome to the podcast and thank you so much for your time. Well, thank you for having me. so by way of, of introduction, uh, before we dive into the formal questions, are there any um, you know, just uh, experiences um, that are formative to your family's experience? And I guess backing up just a step before that, why don't, why don't you give us just a little bit of your background um, and, and introduce yourself just briefly before we dive into your, your early life story? Sure. Uh, well, as you said, my name is Dave Granato. Um, I grew up in New England and Vermont and New York. Uh, went through college for a bachelor's in civil engineering from the Air Force Academy in Colorado. Uh, flew actually as an MQ-9 Reaper pilot for about five and a half years on active duty before I medically separated. Um, did about a year and a half with Harris County as a project manager, uh, managing road and bridge projects, and then. Did a couple more years as a contractor back flying the MQ-9, and now I am designing airports as a project engineer with a company called Garver. So, lots of fun. Got it. Yeah. Um, so uh, we, we talked about this briefly, um, you know, in the green room prior to, but I asked you um, if the absence of seasons, having grown up in. Um, Vermont and you know the New England w- was a problem. I still don't. H- how do you not deal with that? Like especially as pretty as it is in upstate New York and in Vermont. I've got my kids, and the fact that it's beautiful 
weather all year round. I can watch them play soccer, baseball, football all year round without having to deal with the snow. Uh, <laughs> they love it when it snows. I have enough oh. of that from when I was a kid in, in college that I do not miss it. Yeah, I, I could I could see that. So w- one of the themes that, that we talk about on the podcast, David, is um, are there any beliefs and principles that, um, and, and even stories really that shine through that come to you from your grandparents that you remember that are pivotal to your family and, and your family's story? Um, there's a couple, uh, both my, uh, grandparents, um, my mom's side, they came over through Ellis Island back around 1900. Um, and I know my grandfather, he went, did World War II out in the Pacific, um, and hearing him talk about that when he was down at the firehouse, when we'd go to visit, um, or when we were back in his house, that was always uh, an interesting conversation. Uh, you see, he would perk up about some of it because somebody was there to listen, but then he'd also shift gears relatively quickly um, because it wasn't a great topic to discuss. Um mm-hmm. And then Marines are Marines or Navy, David Army. Army. Okay. He has actually uh, Army Air Corps before it became the okay. Air Force. So he was out in Pearl Harbor. And the most notable story I remember from him was actually about Pearl Harbor. Um, he he had a friend who's in the Navy, um, and he went out on a trawler ride with him around Pearl Harbor in the bay uh, one morning just to join him on a mail run. And while they were out there in the little trolley delivering mail, the Japanese came through and started their bombing run. So he hopped off quickly, ran up onto a hill and hopped on a machine gun and started shooting back at them, uh, to help defend the Island. Um, Mm -hmm. so that, that always piqued my interest in the military growing up. I always had little military guys and I had a little box. I remember the military men plus their vehicles, plus all the tanks. And I'd set them up on my grandma's floor, uh, and have little mini battles. Um, <laughs> and my grandfather on my dad's side, similar story. He came over from Italy when he was a little kid through Ellis Island. Um, he went into the army for World War II, but he was over in Europe. So my dad has a few of those trophies, including uh, some interesting firearms from Italy, France, Germany, uh, that are World War II replicas and actually were in World War II. Um, and I had all the little military men. So when I'd go over to her house, we'd play with all of those little military men and the tanks and we'd have a, we'd have a good time. (laughs) Absolutely. Now within your community growing up, you know, I I liken this, you know, there's kind of the barbershop ethos. Uh, Is there, are there any principles and or uh, stories that stick with you um, to this day from where you grew up? Not really. Um, 
I like to think that I had a relatively normal childhood, but I don't really know what normal is. I mean, <laughs> I think we all, we all, you know, think we know what normal is and then, and then with time and space wonder about it. Yeah. Cause I grew up in a small town, relatively small town. Um, it's not backwoods, 15 kids in a graduating class, but we didn't have, um, a graduating class of 600 like my daughter does. Um, Mm-hmm. We had about 400, I think, 450 in my graduating class from high school. Uh, the town we had was 15 or 20,000 people. And I know it has grown since then. Um, so it wasn't the smallest town, but everybody who was in our age group who played sports together, we all played baseball. We played basketball. We played football. I mean, we'd go skiing in the winters. We'd do everything together. We had a really tight group of athletic kids um and then i also was in the cub scouts and then the boy scouts so i had another tight group of friends and the two worlds never really crossed a whole lot we had a few of us that would do both um so having a foot in both worlds uh, gave me an interesting set of perspectives because i could see things from the nerdy kid side and i could see things from the sport kid side Mm-hmm. And of course, me being an engineer, I was a little bit on the nerdy side. <laughs> well, so with regard to your uh, parents, are there any um, events and or stories that uh, you look back on that were formative, you know, from their perspective um, as it kind of shaped the direction that you'd take in life? Uh, yeah, and it's mostly towards my dad's side because um, he grew up. Well, my grandparents grew up during the Great Depression where they had to go without and go very little. Um, And that carried through into my dad where he was very, trying to think of the right word. He didn't pinch pennies, but he knew how to make the dollar stretch. And he would find the right Mm -hmm. deals and he didn't always buy the most expensive or the cheapest thing, but he bought the best quality that we could afford in order to stretch that dollar as far as it would go. Um, and that concept has always carried through with me. I remember a different concept um, of always telling the truth because in eighth grade, I got in trouble. And I remember my dad telling me that he no longer trusted me because I had lied to him and that always stuck with me. So one of the things that I've always done is told the truth. Mm. Yeah. And then, um, it, it, it is crazy how those stories stick with us and those events stick with us and, and shape us to a degree. They sting in the moment. And then, you know, over time they're, they're good for us. What, uh, how, how'd you settle in the air force? Um, do you remember a specific event and, or, um, catalyst for that? Walk us through that. Um, when I went into, high school, we had a Air Force Junior ROTC program, and I had been in band a lot as a in the middle school um, and in grade school prior to it. Um, so I was doing band and ROTC my freshman year, and they were both very fun. And my guidance counselor told me, you don't have time to do both. You have to pick and choose. And I was having a lot of fun with the ROTC guys. And 
the lieutenant colonel, the retired, uh, actually it was retired colonel uh, at the time, he was teaching me the basics of flight on Microsoft Flight Sim. And he, that's what got me into flying and the Air Force because I made during my freshman year in high school the determination that I was going to go that ROTC track because the flying portion was really attractive to me. And I continued learning from him, went out and got my own pilot license and applied through to the Air Force Academy um, and for an Air Force scholarship. And that's where I made my decision back in high school, probably my junior year, that that's where I wanted to go. Uh, I wanted to go fly and I wanted to do it for the Air Force. Now, you mentioned the the colonel, your retired colonel who was a mentor was he an Air Academy grad or how how did you settle upon the, the Air Force Academy specifically? He had luck with a couple of previous cadets uh, applying and going there. Um, I picked it up because it sounded like a good opportunity and it was a free education. So if I don't have to worry about paying for school, might as well go and do it. Um, same thing for the ROTC scholarship that I applied for. Uh, if someone else can pay for it and I don't have to pay out of pocket, let me go do that if I can. Plus, it's a guaranteed job. Um, at the end of my academy, I had a five-year commitment. So mandatory five years, you're going to work for us. So coming out of college, having knowing that I had a job already lined up, that's one less thing to worry about. Um, and then when I went into pilot training, at the end of that Pilot training was another commitment of seven years. So I, I knew my job was lined up for another seven years. So having, having that planned route, um, that's more or less how I decided on the Air Force Academy. It's just like one step after another. It just kept building on itself. Mm-hmm. Now, transitioning, you know, to your time in the military, I know um, I was an infantry officer, you know, for, uh, you know, almost, gosh, you know, four years, but it, uh, it, it shapes you, well, four and a half, really, but it shapes uh, just kind of the, the way you view life. And I don't know if you're like me, but I look back on those years and I appreciate them more in hindsight than maybe I even did at the time and I loved every second of it, but would you mind sharing with us and in our audience, just kind of from your, your vantage point, um, some of the key stories and or, uh, shaping events, uh, of your time in the military? Sure. Um, I remember right at the end of my initial, the initial portion of my pilot training, um, our commander, he came out to us and told us that um, give us this nice big speech about how we're going off. We're going to do great things. But the one part of it that stuck with me was the fact that we're, he says something to, uh, to the effect of you guys are entering a career field where your whole job is to go kill people. If you don't have your mind right about that right now, tell us now and get out now because you have to be comfortable with the fact that you're going to take someone's life. And after he told us that I had to go back to the books, back to uh, my beliefs 
and spent some time with uh, one of my priests that I grew up with um, and one of my religious ed uh, teachers and talked with them to try to wrap my head and my faith around what I was getting into. Um, I think that was one of the more formative events. Um, and then of course I did a, I did a deployment out to Afghanistan for about five months and we had a number of base incursions. We had a number of rocket attacks and I happened to be flying during one of those rocket attacks. So we went and we found the guys who were shooting off the rockets, followed them to a compound and the army ran out there and rolled them up. Um, but that experience of having the rockets impact around us as we're flying an aircraft trying to find these guys uh, and then having the other multiple ones afterwards, it, it made me very comfortable with my situation and my life and the fact that I wanted to always enjoy life to the fullest because I don't know when it's ever actually going to end. Um, so... Yeah, I think it was Winston Churchill that said, you know, there is no more clarifying and thrilling experience than to be shot at with no effect. Right. <laughs> um, <you know? laughs> yeah, it's like, but yeah, it, it, um, it I, I can appreciate this sentiment. Um, as you look back on you know, your time in the military, I've, I've seen this, I mean, and this is a little off topic, but I'm, I'm going to go ahead and go there just because um, I see a lot of former veterans, especially in um, hindsight, looking back on Afghanistan and uh, they, they seem to give a kind of short shrift, I would, I, I would say to the military and all the good things that, that come from it, um, you know, given uh, some of recent events and my feedback to them has always been, you know, Hey, you don't wait for perfect conditions to serve someone. I don't go down the street and say, well, that person in need or that institution in need, I'll serve it when it's perfect or I'll serve it when it, you know, when I feel it's worthy of my help. No, you serve and, and you're changed in the process of serving the institution. Um, what would be your advice given your experience to anyone considering the military? I know I'm going out on a limb here, but I'm, I'm going to go ahead and ask. <laughs> yeah. Um, it was a great learning opportunity, a great uh, event for me, a great time for me. Uh, I made a lot of friends while I was in the military, um, not just in the Air Force, but also in the Navy and in the Army, um, and even a few Marines that I got to know, um, especially going through pilot training. So kind of you to you know exactly. spread the love. <laughs> um, well, we did a bunch of joint stuff. I mean, when I was on base in Kandahar, we had the Brits there, we had Romanians, we had the army. So we had to be friendly with everybody and get along with everybody in order to get anything that we wanted. Um, so it's all about what you make of it. You're not there because of the politics. Mm -hmm. You leave all the politicking and the marching orders to the generals and the colonels. They're, they're dealing with all that nonsense out in DC. Um, as a junior officer, as a junior enlisted person, what you care about is being good at your job and taking care of the guy who's next to you. 
And as long as you maintain that and remember that, everything else is just background white noise. It doesn't matter. You get told to go somewhere, you go there, you do it, you do it to the best of your ability. Um, I don't care what the politician is saying about something or anything else. I care about the here and now and the guy who's sitting next to me. Yeah, no, I agreed. And I, I recommend the military to nearly everyone that they consider it right. at a minimum. Right. And I don't have, I have four kids of my own. I don't, I'm not going to expect them to be in the military, but I want them to at least consider it. And I don't want them to give short shrift to that decision-making process because, um, you know, I, you could do far worse than giving three or four or five years of your life uh, to an institution that's going to, in my opinion, leave you far, far better equipped and prepared after you're on the backside of it than you were prior to. It's just, it, it, there's so many benefits um, to what it does to, you know, just your formation as a leader and as, as a individual. Um, now, obviously, I didn't choose it as a career, so I'm not going to say that, you know, I'm not, I'm not going <laughs> to recommend to somebody what I didn't choose myself, but it's like, Hey, you know, weigh the the pros and the cons for your situation and, and definitely go from there. And, and it just, um, anyway, I, I have nothing but good things to say about the United States military and all the good things that come from your experience to your point, being forced to work right. in a diverse environment and lead a diversity of perspectives. Uh, it, that's not a bad thing at all. Um, when you think, uh, when you think about, you know, uh, your life going forward, I've, I've heard it likened by guys like, uh, David Brooks. They say that, um, you know, he has said, you know, there's that shift in our lives where we, we think we're building a resume and, uh, there's a point in our lives where it shifts and it's more about building a eulogy. And so he says, you know, that there comes that point in time where, our life is in tension between resume virtues and eulogy virtues. Um, from your vantage point, what are some of those eulogy virtues that you want to be a part of your story going forward? I know one thing I'm specifically doing right now actually is uh, teaching my kids about our Catholic faith, um, taking them to uh, religious ed every week, we're, I've got two kids going through First Communion right now. I've got our oldest daughter. She's going through confirmation right now. So that's kind of the, the end of her uh, Catholic upbringing. So I'm trying to bring them up in our family belief system and bring that to them so that they can take a, as much of an understanding and as much of a commitment to it as I have. Um Beyond that, I'm just trying to enjoy life with them as much as possible. So when they look back, they don't remember the times where mom and dad were worrying about buying their sports equipment because we had a heavy month on the bill side um, or anything else. So we're trying to build that financial stability so we're not having to worry about that, but also make sure that the kids don't see any of those potential struggles all they see is the happiness that we have as a family unit and all of the fun times that we have together yeah absolutely i think i would largely echo, echo uh many of those sentiments as well um are there any eulogy um virtues that you've seen in others uh to use the term that that you admire that 
uh, you want to make a part of your own story as well as you think back, maybe even your grandparents or your, your parents. Always being there for the kids, for the grandkids. That's how my parents and my grandparents were. Uh, you ever needed anything, you took it to them. Now you did know that if you wanted uh, something fun, like ice cream, you went and you talked with mom or grandma. If you wanted something like a new baseball <laughs> bat or a new book to go read, you went and talked to dad. So you figured out very quickly which things um, or who you had to go talk to to get what you wanted. Um, but by and large, my parents and my grandparents were always there for us trying to do whatever it took in order to make us successful and make sure that we had everything we needed to succeed. Yeah. yeah. David, thank you so much for your time today. I really enjoyed the conversation. Um, and uh, is there anything else that you'd like to share with our, our audience before we sign off? I can't think of anything. I mean, everything is good. I've enjoyed our time together. <laughs> Excellent. Absolutely. Well, thank you so, so much for your time. We wish you and your family nothing but truth, beauty, and goodness on the road ahead. Thanks. Thank you again for joining us for this week's conversation. We trust that your time has left you both enriched and inspired to better invest your own intangible balance sheet. As always, we wish you and your family continued truth, beauty, and goodness on the road ahead. The opinions voiced in the Wisdom and Wealth podcast with Josh Clues are for general information purposes only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. No strategy assures success or protects against loss. Guests are not affiliated with Carson Wealth Management LLC. To determine what may be appropriate for you, please consult with your attorney, accountant, financial, or tax advisor prior to investing. Investment advisory services are offered through CWM LLC and SEC Registered Investment Advisor. Our address locally is 1780 Hughes Landing Boulevard, Suite 570, The Woodlands, Texas 77380.